Uh, before I start uh, with the actual talk, I wanted to say that the impetus to this came not only from the invitation, but came right in the footsteps of a conversation, a rather long one I did with uh, a Sufi teacher that we often work with and uh, who was in uh, Konya, thanks to the generosity of Turkad and all of these uh, gener very generous and kind people who uh, took us there for Rumi's Urs. And he was asking me, he said, but you're always saying that Ibn Arabi tells stories all the time. And I think he was thinking of the Maslavi in contrast and said, but I sure don't see them, you know, put up or shut up, you know, <laughs> like, you know, talk about these stories. So, you know, it always helps when you're writing to have somebody who's requesting someone out there. And uh, so um, I decided to go through the Futuhat in particular because I, I think he realized there were things he must have read, the Sufis Andalusia, Ralph Austin's translation of the Rule of Quds and the Durat al-Fakhira, but it's true that both the Fasus and the, what's been translated of the Futuhat doesn't always bring out how deeply autobiographical these uh, works are. So the rest of the title I've changed a little bit. I've called it Personal Stories and Spiritual Communication, the Mechan Illuminations, because uh, there's not, storytelling involves uh, other kinds of artistic uh, storytelling, and there's plenty of that in Ibn Arabi as well, but what I'll be focusing on is his own uh, personal stories and roughly the first 40 chapters. We, I won't be speaking about all of them, uh, but uh, we'll be following his uh, own stories as just directly as he gives them in the course of the, these early stages of the 560 chapters of the entire Futuhat. Um, secondly, something more about the title. Um, as you know, it begins, Amma bin Ahadith, as for your Lord's blessings, recount them. And again here, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar, the Muslims would be, because it's a short surah that you can recite your prayers with Surah Doha. But it begins with the evo evocation, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, of the, the light, the beginning light, the dawning light, and the, the stillness of the night, the deep stillness of the night. And you might say, and, and for those who read enough of Ibn Arabi, especially in the Futuhat, this interplay between the night, which is the place where we really have our intimate and life-giving uh, connection with the ultimate source of being, and then the doha as the ways that begins to manifest. It's sort of like, uh, it's not really dawn, but it's kind of, it's like the, the first stages of that process of spiritual growth and realization. It wonderfully encapsulates the way Ibn Arabi writes, where he's always trying to move his listeners or readers back and forth between the night of meditation and contemplation and the, the beginning of that light as things begin to be illuminated. And this is in all of his works. And especially, I, that turned out to be a, a rather nice surah to begin with, because um, to summarize and not read it all, but it evokes a time in the prophet's life, uh, like the surah in Sharah, when things looked like they were going bad, and it says, you know, you know, you you may think I'm mad at you, God, and so forth. I mean, it's really very intimate. But um, and you know, but I found you as an orphan, and goes on, and so there's actually this juxtaposition between the difficulties that the prophet is involved at this early stage of his mission, and the promise that things will uh, not only get better, but really be transformed. And if the last words is for your Lord's blessings, recount them. If you can see that interplay between the difficulties and challenges of life, and which force us to turn upward or to turn inward and look for answers, this is the real dynamic 
of spiritual life for all human beings. It doesn't have much to do with belief. People can say, I'm an atheist. They still have to go through that crucible, as he calls it. And of course, most, the most important stories are the stories that talk about how things change over time. We may have immediate and fantastic unveilings and so forth, but it's how they're assimilated, to use your term, how they become something that, that really is, uh, transforms our life and our soul, that takes us on our path toward perfection. Uh, that's the dynamic that Ibn Arabi is interested in, So, and indeed all of the great Sufi teachers. So this uh, uh, sort of the Doha really does uh, capture uh, very much the, the kind of constant dynamic of what's going on, not just in the Futuhat, as we'll see, but also in Ibar, uh, the, the lives of anyone who finds a book like this useful. Uh, now, I'm going to do something this time that's a little unusual in terms of lectures. Namely, I'm going to start with the conclusions and let you develop your own conclusions as we go along, meaning that I had way too much material to fit into our one hour here at the start. So knowing that we had the seminar, I've made out handouts of about 13 pages of a, a number of these key stories that I've talked about here. I'll pass, for those who are going to come to my seminar this afternoon, it'll be the chance to read. I'd like to pass them out at the coffee, and that way people have them to, who are going to come to the seminar to read and look at some of them. And we'll discuss them as far as we can uh, together this afternoon. There are about 15 or so of these stories in that handout. I probably won't get through more than three or four of the earlier ones in the talk. So since I don't, I'm just going to have to stop introducing these stories when my time runs out, which is 10.30 or 10.20 or something like that right before the coffee, I, um, I want to uh, say some of these things which are in some ways um, contextual, but also will have to do with the, some of the wider importance of stories and telling stories as a spiritual technique um, I must say it's, it's wonderful to, um, this all comes out of almost everybody here has been teaching now, almost all the guests have been teaching long enough to know how absolutely central stories are in teaching, and yet how differently one teaches depending on one's interlocutors. And uh, so for certain students, you tell stories to wake them up. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and this is these all these grades and levels of things that uh, you encounter over time in teaching. There are certain other ones, perhaps the most important ones, that you wouldn't even think of sharing with anyone but someone else who's kind of at the same spiritual stage of realization. Those are the ones either they're happening and you're not quite sure what their meaning is, or because it's taken you 20, 30, 40 years to begin to see their significance. So you need to talk to someone else who also is aware of, of that uh, long-term uh, realm. I mean, as I said, they're short stories and they're very long novels when it comes to the areas of spiritual stories. But let's start, first of all, uh, just in the Islamic context, by reminding everyone that stories are, in fact, uh, completely central to the wider Islamic spiritual tradition, both past and present. Uh, and that is because, and I think modern Muslims are as much in some ways cut off from this, as soon as you leave an oral culture and go into uh, modern culture of media, uh, and also of much less time to tell stories. This is no longer the case. But I mentioned, I, just in my own case, and it's only through teaching I began to realize, for example, that the hadith that you encounter in literature and so forth are usually just very short. Man'arafa nafsahu, well, you could go kuntu kanzan you know, and you can sort of, you see them in three Arabic words or two sentences or something 
When you start teaching the books of hadith, you realize that almost every hadith that you can find, be it a hadith Qudsi or others, are long stories where often they're, they're, they're plays in which the actors and the situation and the context are absolutely important. And it seems like the only people who continue to use stories, for, see that whole dimension of the stories, are people who are into spiritual teaching. I don't ever want to limit that to whatever Sufi might mean, but it's just absolutely amazing when you read hadith and then you read, say, Rumi's Masnavi, and you realize that for him, ilm and his uh, Sufi storytelling, it's just he's just continuing this prophet's tra tradition of telling stories, which are going to have many levels. That's part of them for many different audiences. The sirah, nobody, and he's raised in traditional Muslim environment, the, the life of the prophet, and coming right after that, the kisses al-anbiya, the lives of the other prophets, uh, the asbab al-nuzul, something again that I, uh, in my scholarly training, the the stories about the occasions of revelation of different surahs in the Quran, all of these things were completely absent from scholarly or academic teaching. I, I think at one point people might have assumed that people knew all of that, but these are all fantastic stories that bring alive, uh, so that there's not just this hukum in the Quran, but in the Asbab al-Nuzul, you'll have what was the occasion and the story of this. I remember when I was translating a book recently about the famous part of the Quran says, give back to those who've been entrusted something, give back the amana back to them. And of course, the, each of these stories takes on later huge theological and philosophical meanings, but it's in a very concrete and very dramatic context that this uh, surah was given. So um, it, one of the things that we'll talk a little bit more a little later is that it's very difficult to translate usefully Islamic texts with ad, or, for example, to read the Quran, teach the Quran, without presupposing these stories, or at least, and it's even more so with the adabiyat, with the Islamic humanities in all their forms, uh, to speak of them without being aware of this uh, stories here. And, and I, I would actually call them dramas, because each of these stories and all these things is about a dramatic situation where human choices, situations, struggles are brought into play, and again, uh, something that's now almost entirely... About the only place I see people sticking to stories is for children's books. Have you ever noticed that? Like, like nowadays, college students who come to college, the only religious stories they know or whatever they might have read the back before school, with the Noah's Ark and things like that. <laughs> I mean, it's sad, but that's kind of the way in which uh, people's religious culture you know, gets developed and... And not only uh, in parts of the West, but increasingly, I'm afraid, in other parts of the world as well. Now, um, to move on there, but I also just remind you that in other religious traditions, uh, especially where the key sacred individuals are concerned, their awliya, their anbiya, prophets, saints, and teachers in all their forms, there again, you, you, when you enter into those, either by reading or by visiting or through friends, you realize again that everything is told by stories. I happen to have a friend, fellow guy, Paul Fenton, and other friends and teachers over the years who kind of we taught a lot of the similar things, and in his case, uh, the stories of the Kabbalah, the Zohar, especially. And then it's later popular expressions in, among the Hasidim uh, down to our own day. Of, uh, storytelling is absolutely central. You think of at least the Zen masters and teachers in India and China. So wherever you go around the world, uh, stories become a kind of window through which you very quickly recognize what Ibn Arabi is talking about, about the, not only the uh, presence of the divine, of this, uh, this alif in each human being, but of the ways that people communicate about it. 
Now, in Sufism, again, this is just to recall things, and I know many of you know this better than others, but I just want to say again, is that there's, stories play a key role, both personal, that is in the reality of things, and also in didactic and literary constructions in the historical evolution and self-conception of Sufism in the widest sense, both locally and on oral practice, and also in the wider shared literary expressions, which are, again, what I'm sure my colleague, Sufi colleague, was thinking of in Konya, it was hagiographies, Malfuzat, which is about as close as you get to autobiographical writings in most Sufism, which is basically what we're doing here. Uh, somebody talking or explaining something, it's recorded, taken down in notes, and Malfuzat are almost always appear in the third generation when the saintly, holy figure who everybody revered and took for granted suddenly has disappeared. The, first, the next generation knew him or her personally, and so they don't feel that much need for writing. But guess what happens uh, when he gets to the third generation? <laughs> Here's Kanan Rafai. If you didn't get to meet him, you know, here's what he was like. I, uh, I remember it because I had Anna Marie Schimmel, who's one of his great admirers, and, and some of his disciples as my teacher. And reading this, I felt like I was back in the Turkey that uh, she used to teach us about in, in her classes. So it's still, very, and it's even more the case, of course, the stories that the very essence of sohbet or sohba, the inter interconnection between the teacher and disciple, and whether that teacher is in this world or the other, uh, this bleeds into sort of all the different realms of spiritual realization and communication in everyone's everyday life. That is our dreams, our visions, our intuitions, and our realizations of all sorts. All of these are stories in context, and of course, uh, when we start reading Ibn Arabi's stories, he's very careful to make the context clear. Uh, and these stories are themselves the underpinnings and the expressions of our spiritual relations with each individual uh, wali or prophet. And with, uh, in particular, you can see this in all the rituals and phenomenology of ziyarat, of pilgrimage. Um, I, it's mistranslated as pilgrimage, but for, for those of you, is there anybody here who hasn't been on ziyarat? Maybe I don't even need an explanation. Good, saves me time <laughs> if that's the case. Um, but ziyara is a relationship. It's not about traveling in time, but it's traveling in the spiritual world through the time of your relationship with the spiritual reality that you perhaps go outwardly to visit, but the, you have to know about before you go there. Or, or when you go there, you suddenly discover that this reality has been with you all through life. Now to get to stories in Ibn Arabi and the works of Ibn Arabi. What marks Ibn Arabi's writing among these traditions of wider traditions of Islamic and Sufi stories is the intimate connection of personal experience and the wider point that he's illustrating or explaining that's built into what he considers the essential human aim and method of taqiq, which happily, again, you saved me from, from having, to, which is going to come back, uh, that's the word realization, taqiq or taqiq or tahakuk, uh, the person who does this is the maqiq. And by the way, just to add to what, <coughs> what Stephen just said, this is the way Ibn Arabi and his disciples described themselves uh, for centuries down to the colonial period through Jami and on into his followers in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and all. It's the school of Taqiq. They would say they're Mahakiku, and they're philosophers who also uh, use the same term, but you'll quickly know which kind of taqiq they were talking about. And in his case, it wasn't that of logic and physical proofs, but a different kind of logic and a different set of proofs. So Ibn Harvey's uh, first period of his life, we, uh, 
basically before he came east. It's really the first half of his life, adult life. He wrote highly symbolic and almost all autobiography works, but veiled autobiographies of this earlier period. Uh, there's basically his Kitabulis Ra, which was his symbolic recounting of his experience of becoming one with the ultimate spiritual reality of the Quran or the Hakika Muhammadiyah. Uh, I don't think there's anything that I've seen that he wrote after that that isn't just a footnote to the Kitabulis Ra, which is good because the Kitabulis Ra is unreadable in itself, so untranslatable, um, because you need all the footnotes to understand what all those symbols are in this highly symbolic work. And I think uh, the other book that's widely available, what Benny Grill did a nice short work from that period in French, and I think it's been done in English, and uh, Jerry Elmore did the Enclave Mugreb with largely translated, or most of it's translated. But if you've looked at those things, they're very autobiographical, but they're so symbolic in their encoding that, again, you have to take the later Ibn Arabi to go back and decipher them. Uh, the other place that you've probably encountered stories of Ibn Arabi is in these two little books that uh, Ralph Austin translated together, the biographical sections, Sufis of Andalusia. If you haven't read that book, I still have to come over to England and more, buy copies for my students. But it's the most approachable of all of Ibn Arabi's works, and it's one in which he actually shows spiritual growth in context and emphasizes the breadth of spiritual life involving everyone in society, not just uh, he was rather put off when he went east and discovered that people were uh, institutionalizing spiritual life in ways he felt were dangerous to the wider society. Those, In fact, the prologues and conclusions to those works, which aren't in Austin's translation, are actually about the, the risks of institutionalizing spirituality. And uh, he repeatedly mentions the characters and the stories from this book throughout the Futuhat whenever he's speaking of the awliya and their powers and spiritual stations. Uh, then you have actually in later writings uh, things which are very autobiographical and straightforwardly so, either of different dreams or of different uh, spiritual experiences that are often assimilated in less autobiographical forms in the Futuhat. Uh, it, it really came back to me, I was talking with Stephen about this last night. We think of the Futuhat as one book, but it took really 25 years or so for him to finish. And the parts I'm talking about are highly situated in the first years when he was in Mecca when he'd just come east. And there are other parts which uh, I think we can put a Gradston to work on this very soon and eventually get a much clearer idea of what works were written when and so forth. Uh, because if you don't do that, you sort of have this idea that all everybody wrote was the same thing all the time. And it doesn't matter which book and which chapter or whatever you write about. But as we are talking about it, something as key an idea as the Ein Thabita, the, the eternal essence of each individual human being. This is an idea which seems to have only developed later on after the Meccan period and the later period of his life as part of the kind of systematization of his thought. And of course, if you, those of you who worked with the Fasus know how central it is there. Um, the, uh, let's see, oh, so I was going to mention in particular the Kitabat Stajaliyat, where he has all of these encounters with other spiritual, earlier spiritual figures, or the eschatological visions that he was given in the Tanazalat al which are then go into chapters 59 to 63 of the uh, Futuhat in where he kind of strips away the personal experience, which is very clear, but he's actually giving you an account there of what he experienced in a very visionary form in uh, Mosul during it, uh, at the time of that, that particular vision. Um, the uh, next thing to say throughout this is the ways in which the unstated dramatic role of the um, 
stories of the prophets, the Kisses Alambia. It's funny, I, I discovered that Stephen and Jane and Cecilia, wherever you are around here, must be, she's there somewhere. <laughs> nope, not, oh, there you are, <laughs> yeah. That you, are, you folks are back to teaching the Fasus, uh, different audiences now, and I'm doing the same with a lot of grad students at Harvard and BC. And, and I discovered this doesn't make any sense. The Fasus of Hickam is half a book. The other half is the Kisses Alambia, the tales of the prophets that are being talked about there. And it's like, um, basically, if you put the two together, you have the Masnavi. <laughs> but you, because the dramas are all in the tales of the prophets and their people and all the struggles that go on on both sides here. And you take the story of a prophet like Hud and what you have in the Kisses Alambia about the story of the people of Ad over 40 or 50 years interacting with him. It's like a whole Sirah of a prophet uh, that is a vast thing. And as a reader of that chapter of the Fasus at Hickam, you have to put yourself in the position of who, to the people who followed him, or the people who didn't, and learn from why some people are listening to you, why other people are not. And if you're not able to become the prophet and to become the people that he's addressing, who are both responding and not responding, you haven't really gotten anything from what you're reading there. He, he sort of sets it up so it's only through the drama and participating in that drama that you actually begin to learn. Because the people of Hud, for every parent, are their children, to start with, for example. You know, you're the prophet among your children. Um, uh, you're the prophet with your students, with your co-workers, and so forth. So life is filled with these actual dramatic situations that Ibn Arabi is seeking to illuminate in each chapter of the Fasus of Hikam. And once that became clear, well, then it becomes a very interactive process of learning about the Fasus because people have to bring in their own understanding of what he's talking about. And what I'm saying here, don't, don't worry, oh, when is he going to get to the Futuhat? Because you'll just see him doing the same thing in the Futuhat excerpts here and the ones we'll take up in the afternoon there. But I'm just trying to explain how important, again, this autobiographical... Uh, Dimension is as not like there's Ibn Arabi up there, that's his autobiography. No, he's giving these stories so that we can actually see how this is still going on in our own lives and our own situations and background. Uh, Futuhat, uh, let's see here. Oh, again, in the Futuhat, it quickly becomes clear as you go along, and unfortunately, we don't have, I, I guess, um, a friend of ours, Eric Winkle, says he's going to translate now big chunks of it, but I'm I'm always suspicious. I've become less... Bill Chittick, I know, feels the same way. The older we get, the less capable we feel of translating the Futuhat. So for those of you who are out there waiting for us to do it all, <laughs> don't hold your breath. You know? but, but it's really... There are people here who can read it in Arabic, and you don't need that kind of help. And to the extent that you do go through the Futuhat bit by bit, you discover very quickly how much of it is autobiographical. Not that he says so, but almost anything having to do with spiritual states, the Manazel and with the Awliya. If you've read enough of these other books, you can see that, again, what he often does is to put it in a pedagogically somewhat systematic form, but where the life of it comes from, the stories he tells either there or elsewhere. And uh, a couple other points about autobiography here. Um, as any teacher knows, there's a special and lasting spiritual impact of any expression of autobiographical personal experience and personal encounters, no matter how that is framed. Um, there are probably a lot of people who have here have read at least book one of the Mastathi or studied it at different times. 
And I find when I'm teaching it, whenever students start to get away or whatever, the, the mystery of the mustavi and why it's so palpable, no matter whether it's book one or book six or whatever, is that it is the story of Shams and the story of Rumi. <laughs> it's just, there's not a single story cycle where the culmination of it, well, you may call it Hosamadine or somebody who lived later, but it's this story. And as soon as you can see that, the whole section of the Mastavi comes alive. And I think as people become more aware of the person of Ibn Arabi and what he's trying to say, that you'll begin to see this not only with the Futuhat, but with other writings of his. And uh, I, I mean, it, it really is the case, I, I, in the classroom at least, that people do remember these things for decades. If you are able to get to the point of intimacy where you can express something that you've really lived, it just is impacting people on a very different level. And memory is one measure of that, that people come back 10, 20, 30 years. Do you remember when we talked about this or when we did that? Otherwise, you, you need refreshers, but, but it, autographical, autobiographical personal experiences, pretty, I'm a bit net, but the Rabika Fahadith, you know, it's, it's something that, that is meant to be shared at the right place and the right point. Uh, then, of course, stories are often living illustrations of the reality of specific spiritual and ethical points where, see, the problem with storytelling in Rumi and, and uh, Ibn Arabi wrestle with this in different ways, is that human beings are going to go through very similar sets of experiences, but every time you go through them, it'll be a different point in life, a different circumstance, and it, the sharing, how do you get across the commonality of the spiritual lesson, the spiritual circumstance, knowing that for each person that you're talking to, they're going to encounter it at a different age with a different set of people, a different outlook, and that's why I, I really have loved traditions like Sufism and some extent what I can read in English, Hasanim, because it's just continuous storytelling because ultimately, from Ibn Arabi's point of view, the world is a divine comedy. The world is a divine story. And there's no... Uh, Joseph may be the Asanal Kissas, but everything is a kissa. Everything is a book of spiritual lessons for everyone. And so, uh, you know, we really... Uh, to, to learn about that, though, usually you, you kind of have to have get a little older, have a lot of experience to begin to recognize how these things are recurring in those around us. So stories in the Futuhat provide the larger existential context for general or abstract teachings, especially those teachings that require us to look at interrelations of our actions, that is, our own actions and others, with their eventual consequences over considerable periods of time and in different contexts what I often shorthand call the karmic aspect of these things, not implying any Buddhist or Hindu uh, philosophy here, but simply this development over time of our actions and their consequences. The last thing I just wanted to note that's relevant here to anybody reading Ibn Arabi, any work, not just the Futuhat, is Ibn Arabi is carefully diffident for the most part in dialing back the autobiographical nature of much of what he communicates especially the sensitive topic of his own sense of his spiritual role and function as the Khatm al-Awliya al-Muhammadiyah, uh, which, as uh, again, if you've read uh, Michel Shotkevitz, you've hung out with people who know Ibn Arabi well, one takes for granted a kind of familiarity with his spiritual function and that of other uh, great Sufi teachers and awliya and so forth. But when he comes to the Futuhat especially, he often takes something that is openly autobiographical somewhere, uh, and very often... Uh, 
we, he talks in pseudonyms. He'll say, oh, a friend of me, a friend of mine told this wonderful story about Ardo Hikika. We were talking about this last night. Because you can't ever say with 100% certainty that he's talking about himself. But I think you can get to 99%. So, uh, and it really, again, will enliven your reading of the Futuhat as more of it becomes translated to realize how often he's really talking about his own discoveries. So um, doing OK here? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, thank goodness for this afternoon. <laughs> um, now, I'm about <laughs> now to get into the actual Futuat. <laughs> but I did say I'd give you the conclusions before the, the lessons. Um, the beginning words, I wanted to just say that the very beginning words of the chutbah that opens the whole work, and the beginning of the Futuat is so complicated, but he has this short chutbah. Um, he actually mentions in it twice in the first sentence this uh, Tahikan, not only that, but Natahakaku, that we realize through Tahikan. We in Ibn Arabi is always um, us and God, and like the we in the Quran, and um, us, uh, the idea of Al-Mu'minun, Al-Mu'min, Meratul Mu'min, are Al-Mu'minun, Awliya, Ba'dhum, Libad, that the, the people who are close to God are, are uh, sent to each other, sent to teach each other. So the we here is important. Uh, it's not... This is a very famous passage, being the first words of Futuhat, and could be commented uh, for a whole book. But praise be to God who gives being to all things from nothing, skip over, who makes their being dependent upon his words, his logoi, which is, alludes to the Aulia and the Anbiya, who are going to be the central subject of the entire Futuhat. So that we might realize that the Hakkak, through this, that, the secret of their occurrence and their pre existence, the logoi, through which is the, the, the kalimat, through his timeless perdurance, and so that we might discover through this realization, this again, this taqiq, what he leads us to know. So if there's any question about how central taqiq is, he says here, um, first of all, it, it centers on our awareness of spiritual realities which are beyond ourselves but often take on human manifest form and that we could only discover what we need to know from God through this realization, which is intimately connected with those uh, different uh, spiritual beings. Uh, the first uh, the thing, everything I'm going to speak about, and it is in the seminar, is from the first of the six main sections, or fusul, of the Futuhat. And I don't know that he wrote it all directly through, but as you'll see from the sections I give here, it's clear that these opening passages, at least, were from that very early period, just when he had come in his pilgrimage. And for all we know, didn't know that he wouldn't be going back eastward. Uh, home was still back in the Maghreb at that period of time. We didn't know that he'd spend so much of his time in, in Turkey and, and present-day Iraq and, and Syria as he ended up doing. So the first 13... I, I, this is, since we don't, most of you don't have the Futuhat in English to look at, the first 13 chapters of this... This fossil has six main parts. This uh, first part uh, is about foundational knowing or foundational forms of spiritual knowing. The first 13 chapters are about the building of the dar, building of the alam, of the universe. Uh, so it's like, it's how the house was built. Okay, the house in which we and the angels and the spirits and the jinn, everybody are part of it. On creation, cosmology, the ontological order, the stage for the divine comedy. Uh, he doesn't have to say much autobiographically in that section because the symbolism is chronic and familiar to everyone of the pen, the tablet, the light, the names, the throne, the footstool, and so on. 
And on the other hand, the Ptolemaic, scientific, Aristotelian, Avicenna interpretations of the cosmology and the physical realm, they were again very familiar to all of his readers. So those two bodies of symbolism, are the Quranic and the philosophical, physical, are ones that he uses throughout all of his writings uh, from the first to the last of his life with different emphases. Second part, most of my stories that I've given here are from chapters 15 to 58. And although that sounds like a lot, many of these chapters are, I, I used Osman Yahya's version, but I mean in the original four-volume one, they're, they're a page or at most uh, of the, the big Bulak edition that most people refer to. These chapters focus on the key actors within that divine comedy of our life, that is the... Uh, the prophets, the awliya, and the orafa, and the kinds of awareness or understanding, spiritual understanding, associated with their manazal, as he calls them, their spiritual way stations, and the distinctive attributes and functions of those spiritual realities or spiritual persons. Um, and here's where Ibn Arabi constantly refers to illustrations drawn from his personal experience. Uh, I've only given stories through chapter 40, volume 3 of uh, Osman Yahya's edition. But, um, and I've only mentioned the open, the autobiographical stories, but in fact, in this section where he's talking about the awliya and spiritual learning and spiritual understanding and the instruments of it, almost everything is autobiographical because his main function here is to awaken his readers to the very existence of these spiritual realms and realities. And hence, he has to rely on first-person stories and experiences to open the door to acknowledge these realities. And there are tremendous problems with this he alludes to in some of the passages I've translated and that anybody here who does spiritual teaching knows is if you're talking to somebody who's experienced in the spiritual path, they don't need the futuhat, they don't need any book, they need a good master and the good master's enough in some ways. They might want to read this if they're going to be teachers themselves because Ibn Arabi is writing a book here that's really kind of an interface between the rest of the Muslim community and the Sufis of his day, who certainly did not spend most of their time reading or writing books. Uh, you, what they do is you, you can get it from these autobiographical stories. But um, the, the problem, in, for those who teach in classrooms or public audiences, on the other hand, is either people are unaware, they think the house that we live in is what we can see and touch and feel with the physical senses. Uh, if they're religious, they may think that there's another one out there far away in time and place. It'll come sometime after we die or whatever, but it's kind of a, some kind of mirror they fantasize in terms of the symbols of their tradition. And in between, there's nothing. And um, so if you're going to teach that kind of us, you really have to convince them, first of all, that what we can see and feel and hear is the tiniest part of the reality of experience. And the world in which we live today is not kind of, uh, there's nothing out there much to convince you of that. It kind of has to come from your inside and from your experiences because you don't believe in it. You actually have to learn to experience it to know that it exists. And then the second level of difficulty that Ibn Arabi is also always wrestling with as a teacher and those who teach in these fields know it very well is when people first wake up to the existence of this huge universe that we call the universe, spiritual universe or the barzakh or this place in which spiritual influences and actors and powers interact with us, is that they tend to be very excited about that little bit that they experienced. I remember one, uh, one of my uh, teachers I know a long time said he, he tried to make sure that his, his disciples did not have so-called spiritual experiences because it was kind of like a drug, and uh, both in a sense. That, and Ibn Arabi says the same thing here, despite his 
the divide is rep. He actually is very careful in talking about these things because people, first of all, get fascinated with the powers that they discover. And you, you surely, everybody's here met people who like, wanted to be able to do this and influence this. And it kind of like is discovering an apothecary shop that's very dangerous. Or they get very fanatic about their, their um, wali and their sheikh and this set of experiences. And rather than opening them up to the universality of the spiritual world and the ways that it infringes with everyone's life, they will only talk about this or that particular experience and sort of take it as the whole picture. And uh, again, I, I can only assume that looking around, if you've made it this far, you don't usually study Ibn Arabi out of that attitude, let's put it that way, because he's so insistent on the... Uh, Whatever you think you understand of what he's talking about, next year you'll discover that twice as much has suddenly come into focus. So these are the two parts. Um, the next part, chapters 59 to 65 of Fasl Marif, is the things that are now available in French, the, the parts that I translated and gave lectures on in Paris a while back, hopefully get out in English, on the Ma'ad, but only in a cosmological kind of very broad uh, uh, cosmological kind of notion of the stages of the soul's return. Uh, chapter 66 to 72 on the fundamental acts of worship that phrase this kind of phenomenology of spiritual experience, which I think was written much later. It's, much, uh, it's really of the ilk of the writings you'll find in the five last parts. But uh, we have Aisha Bewley's, I noticed her translation back there, which uh, doesn't have any footnotes. Probably the only text in Ibn Arabi you'll ever get to read without footnotes, but there's a certain cost in, cost in her translating just what you understand and silently uh, leaving out the rest. And uh, finally, the capstone chapter 73 that you've all read about in uh, Shotkovitz's Seal of the Saints. So um, one of the interesting parts about this opening of the, uh, of the uh, first chapters, uh, which I don't have on the handouts because I'll, I'll just get up to the things in the handouts, is it's how autobiographical it clearly is. And in particular, it really fits with something that, that happened to fit with the sort of the Doha there which is that you really get a sense of Ibn Arabi arriving in Mecca as a totally unknown person with a very unusual... <laughs> it's, it's kind of, I mean, I, I, I had colleagues who taught and some of the early Hasidic people like Baal Shem Tov and so forth, and, and the, you know, you can imagine who, if Moshe de Leon was trying to spread the Zohar, he didn't want it seen as his book, but as... Uh, Book. So Ibn Arabi's got this amazing mission in life to kind of be the capstone of all the saints and spiritual figures in the entire world. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen to you if you tell people about that? I mean, it's <laughs> you, you, you won't be stoned or anything. They'll just lock you up as crazy. You know? <laughs> you know, you're not really dangerous yet. It's only when people start listening to you, it might get dangerous. But you'll just be kind of, well, go away. And, um, and that's one of the reasons, obviously, he wrote so much in such a symbolic form in his Maghrabi period, where, where people had only his personal disciples or friends would really know what the earth he was talking about. And when he did kind of come out of the closet and talk a little bit, as I have a few of those stories here about what happened, you know if it happened today, it'd be like Rumi and Shams. He'd be back in big trouble. And uh, so the other thing about it is not just this, how much can I say of what I understand here? And how can I communicate it so it begins to be useful to people? But it's also a, a real sense of insecurity. I mean, anybody here, I think, has been through different stages when you have a period of strong spiritual growth 
where you feel like you can only talk to one or two other people if you're lucky about it. Um, I'm notorious in classes and otherwise of just letting it, putting it out there, see what people make of it. But I know I have many teaching colleagues who would never do such a thing. And, but, but it's almost like you can only learn more to the extent that you can actually assimilate what you've actually learned. And in order to do so, it's absolutely essential to have that lam to go with the aleph so that you, you know, close that circle. And the lam aleph is so wonderful because it's like a cup at the top, you know, it's completely open and receptive uh, I'm, to the divine, uh, what comes from above. And then it has to filter. It has to go through this filter. For those of you who are chemists, like our sheikha here, you know, it has to go through the, the filter to get into the heart. You know. And so uh, these images are very, very rich indeed. And um, so Ibn Arabi is really diffident. And one of the interesting things is he writes about this. The second piece in the Hudohat is a letter back home to the Sheikh Mahdavi, Abdulaziz Mahdavi, who housed him before he left her. And you really feel when, in these passages, like, like this is the really guy I can really trust, except Badruddin Habashi, who's like his Sancho Panza and just is always there, you know, to, to help out. But apart from Badruddin, you know, Mahdavi's back there in Tunis, but he's somebody who'll understand what Ibn Arabi has to say. And I don't think he lived as long as the final recension or publishing of the Futuhat, but certainly these earlier passages. Uh, Matavi is always referred to um, as almost the beginning of every chapter. He calls him the Wali, the Habib, or the Safi, uh, my beloved, my friend, my sort of saintly friend, the ones close to my heart are Safi, the pure one. And of course, Ibn Arabi is using them ambiguously because he's addressing it to every reader who will take on those qualities. But um, just... So uh, the, in the khutbah, just to mention it, because this part has been translated, the first of these autobiographical sections, the rest of it he recounts an unforgettable dream, what he calls that exalted visionary scene while asleep, on Mashad Naumia, of his investiture in the divine court as the seal of Muhammad's sainthood. Uh, Michel Valson translated most of this, and then Ibn uh, Shudkovitz talks more about it. But he sort of witnesses the whole cosmic drama of creation and humanity's return and gives you a kind of symbolic account again of what's going to be the story of the whole Futahat and Makia. And I can only refer you here, I don't have to translate it, to Valsan uh, Chodkovitz's. And, and actually each of the biographers of Ibn Arabi has also had things to say about this passage. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead. And then in the Rasala, the opening sort of, it really means letter here. This letter that's addressed to his older teacher and companion in Tunis, uh, who becomes the idealized addressee of the entire Futuhat, like Shams or Hasamadin in, in Rumi's Masnavi. Uh, here he begins with um, a, a long poetic description of his vision and experiences at the Kaaba that revealed to him the contents of the entire Futuhat. I think that means the organization, perhaps not actually every single word. Uh, but uh, again, that has often been translated and studied, uh, this particular event. But it's it's his appeal to Mahdavi, again, that comes right after this mention of this event at the Kaaba, that casts the entire experience of reading the Futuhat in a very moving and unfamiliar light. Once we're aware of Ibn Arabi's own uncertainty about sharing these illuminations and with whom he should share them, who's really qualified to learn from them? And will they ever think of it as just a vast ego trip? Um, uh, I, what comes to mind here is Shams is supposed in, in some of the... Um, these, these notes about Shams Tabriz and his discussions in 
in uh, Konya, uh, uh, Omid Safi has an article a few years back in the journals kind of indicating that, Ibn, that Shams might have thought that Ibn Arabi was just a little too full of himself or <laughs> a little too uh, aggrandized and so forth. And frankly, if you read some of these passages and you know how hard-nosed Shams was about just get it, <laughs> don't talk about it, write about it, you, you might... It might be that he's talking about Ibn Arabi. It's uh, somewhat critical of someone with that name, at least, that he met. And, and uh, he has great things to say about him as well. But, um, and, and will there anybody be along who will ever really understand either this book of the Futuhat or Ibn Arabi's own larger spiritual role? Then he suddenly, in talking to Mahdavi um, here, he says very personally, So you must know my understanding and cultured and beloved friend, Akil Adib Wali Habib, that the wise man, whatever this spiritual worldly abode separates him from his companion and from the vicissitudes of destiny come between him and his dear friend, then that friend must surely inform him about everything that he has learned during his absence and all the goods of wisdom that he has acquired in his travels. Thus he may gladden his devoted and loving friend with all the subtle insights he confides in him, the kind understandings he conveys to him, the wisdom that he entrusts to him, and all the words he shares with him so that it is though his friend was never apart from him because of what he now knows of him. And again, you can almost read the entire Futuhat as this telegram back home to the Maghreb to tell people about what's going on and how Ibn Arabi is growing in awareness. But then um, he goes on, and this is, yeah, this is where I will end with this short selection, uh, or maybe close to it. But something he again tells, this is still in the Rasal, uh, Rasal uh, opening the Futuhat. He talks about time that Mahdawi and another Abdullah Murabit and Ibn Arabi and his companion Badr Habashi spent in Tunis, nine months they spent there before leaving for the Hajj. And he said, we were four pillars upon which stands the very person of the cosmos and of humanity, Shaks al-Alamul Insan. And then after mentioning the stages of his subsequent pilgrimage back to Mecca, Ibn Arabi adds, it might have been an excuse that God brought to them my mind that I should inform my friend about the different sorts of spiritual understanding that I realized during my absence, that is, during his presence in Mecca, and I present those to him, the gifts of those gems of knowledge that I acquired during my exile. So I wrote down for him this unique and incomparable treatise which God, al-Haq, brought into being as a talisman against the manifestations of ignorance. And I called it, here you get the title, A Treatise of the Meccan Illuminations Concerning the Secrets of Divine Rulership in the Divine Kingdom, since most of what I have entrusted to this treatise concerns what God opened up to me during my circumambulation of his noble house or while I was sitting fully attentive to him in his magnificent sacred quarter. For the great difficulties, and this is now getting down to all of us, for the great difficulties of the beginning of the spiritual path are not easy for human beings unless they really know the full dignity of the goal, especially if they have tasted the sweetness of the harvest from that, from that knowing and if it occurs at the destined time and place. For when the outward gaze is restrained, the eyes of the spiritual insight of the wise person is, in, is intensified so that they truly see and truly reflect. Then they can extract the gleaming pearls and nuggets. When that happens, the chapter, door, the bab will give rise to the extent of their spiritual penetration and understanding, the power of their determination and their concentrated spiritual attention, their azn, azni, and their imma, and the range and amplitude of their spiritual capacity, all of the spiritual wisdom and the divine insights it contains, uh, they will discover these from their immersion in the depths of his seas of knowing. 
Okay, and the next place autobiographical one is one I just want to mention is the one of his meeting with the Fatah Fai that Fritz Meyer and Henri Corbin and again the biographers have all talked about at the very beginning of chapter one. Uh, in chapter four, and I guess I'll just stop here because it is in the selections that we can then look over this afternoon for those who want to come to the seminar. Chapter four, he goes back and talks to Mahdi about the power of spiritual places in very, very clear terms. He's at once talking about, he actually gets into it to apologize because he took one of Matavi's servants, Khadim, I don't know what it means, servant or disciple, with him to, to Mecca. And you have every impression he was planning to go back to Tunis because he apologizes for having hauled this fellow off and then left him and abandoned him in Mecca and he's no longer going back to Tunis. And that gets him into talking about the power of spiritual places, both places that they were together in, in Tunisia, in Tunis City actually, and then later on. And then the next thing is in Ardo Hakika. Uh, but all of these, are, let me just say, do I have two minutes here or not? Two minutes, that's fine. Well, I won't, you know, I hate, I, I, I realized when I got prepared for this, is I have 12 of these talks, mostly as translations from 1990, when you first invited me over here till now, which never have gone into print, you know. And that's at least two big books like The Reflective Heart. And so I'm going to try and use a sabbatical year for everybody to try and get more of this down in print. So there are probably a lot of you here in 1990 weren't even uh, concerned with Ibn Arabi. And I have to apologize in a way because it's, it's lucky if we can get through these. But it is, uh, it is important to get more out there translated and to share these, uh, these blessings. And uh, so my apologies, my apologies if they don't get out. But we had a long conversation last night about <laughs> using the journal to get at least more of these passages, uh, translations out there so that uh, otherwise, uh, uh, for those without Arabic, it is a, uh, is a problem. And I haven't talked to, I don't know, I know there are now Persian and Turkish translations of the Futuhat, but I suspect the translation here, as we often find, at least in Persian translations, is like the Arabic with a... Persian verb at the end, which doesn't really solve anything. It just kind of, you've got the words of the Arabic, but you still have to figure out what they mean, and you can't get away with that in other languages. You really have to translate things as you understand them. So my apologies for, for, not, for all the negligence of past symposium proceedings, and above all, my thankfulness for those who can come and share the readings of the next uh, 12 or 15 stories that we can work on this afternoon. And the, and the, I'll hand those out, but again, we only have 30, 35, uh, because, uh, uh, was it Richard said, we're going to be rigorous about making sure that people... Then you go the same on the road. That many seeds, so... <laughs> yeah. So only take them if you're going to come, basically. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.